Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Today's episode will be slightly different than others. Um, I am not working from a script today. Don't worry, I'm not speaking off the cuff. This is a topic that I have studied a great deal. It is one that I've written about before and that I have spoken about before, and I am working from one of my old articles and notes and all that, so don't worry, I'm not just improvising. However, if my cadence and tone of voice sounds a little different this episode, that's why. And I am bringing this out for two reasons. Uh, My wife and I moved house this past week, and it was quite a bit. I did not have time to research and write an entirely new episode. And also, as luck would have it, I am currently sitting at our new house in North Portland, which is very close to the subject of today's episode. In fact, I am less than two miles away from most of what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you about Vanport, the lost city of Vanport, one of the biggest public housing developments in the United States during World War II. It used to be the second largest town in Oregon after Portland, and it's gone. If you were to walk from my house, walk over to Columbia River Slough, and go around where Vanport was, today you'd see a park, you'd see a racetrack, but you wouldn't see the houses, the community centers, or the churches that used to be there. It's all gone. Now, Vanport was very much a product of World War II, and not just American involvement in World War II. Even before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, manufacturing in the United States was on the upswing because we were selling things like guns and ships to the United Kingdom and to the Soviet Union. After American involvement, though, things went into overdrive, And you had military contractors, like the Kaiser Company, hiring people to make all kinds of implements of destruction. Now, Portland in particular became important because the region had extraordinarily cheap power here. It also has access to the Pacific Ocean. So if you were somebody like the Kaiser Company, who wants to make ships, hey, you got cheap power, you got the ocean right there, you're good. Of course they set up here. However, one thing that the Kaiser Company didn't have for their shipbuilding operations was people. There just were not enough industrial workers in Portland, Oregon at the time. There were only about 320,000 people in 1942 to fulfill the demand for labor. So Kaiser, along with their friends in the federal government, did everything they could to get people to move to Portland, Oregon and build ships. One advertisement from Kaiser said, Previous experience is not necessary. Training will be given on the job. Willingness to work and a desire to do that work are what will do to maximum good. Kaiser's solicitations appealed to workers' patriotic viewpoint, and they advertised a base pay, a base pay of 88 cents an hour, which would be about $13 an hour in our current dollars. So, plenty of folks answered the call. Plenty of folks said, That is a pretty good deal, in particular African-Americans. At around the same time, 
lots of African Americans were moving away from the American South and to lots of job-having industrial centers. One of them was Portland, Oregon. They signed up, they got jobs with Kaiser, and there was a problem. They needed to live somewhere. Now, make no mistake, there were also plenty of white migrant workers who also wanted to work for Kaiser. And those white migrant workers did encounter a fair amount of classism and kind of like state-based xenophobia. If you look at publications in the 1940s in Portland, Oregon, you will find people complaining about Okies and Arkies and that kind of thing. So there is also that element to the story. However, those migrant white workers had the luxury of living basically anywhere in the Portland area where they could find housing. If there was space available somewhere, they could crash there. The African-American migrants did not have that luxury. The only place they were really quote-unquote allowed to live was in a neighborhood called Albina in North Portland. And if you look at publications, newspapers and the like, in Portland, Oregon in 1942, you'll read all sorts of things about how the Albina neighborhood is full to bursting. One headline in the Portland Oregonian read, New Negro Migrants Worry City, for instance, and went on to say that the influx of black workers was, quote, taxing the housing facilities of the Albina district and confronting authorities with a new housing problem. The mayor also said, quote, Portland can absorb only a minimum number of Negroes without upsetting the city's regular life, unquote. In other words, Portland could only stuff so many black people into one neighborhood, and if they didn't do something about it, suddenly you might, oh my God, have non-white people in neighborhoods where they weren't supposed to be. And in the local publications of the time, you can see all sorts of kind of like moral panic scaremongering about the new black workers who want these Kaiser jobs. There was even, and I kid you not, an editorial in the Daily Journal of Commerce, a Portland business publication that I used to write for, that decried that there was a zoot suit in Portland. There was a guy wearing a zoot suit, and the DJC said that it had been, quote, imported directly from Harlem. Now, of course, there was pushback from Portland's, at the time, relatively small black community. Um, one of the major African-American community leaders at the time was a guy called Dr. De Norville Unthank. And he asked Portland's, you know, dominant, rich, scaremongering white population to, quote, accept these people as citizens of Portland worthy of the same respect as any other group of incoming people. Begin to practice here in Portland some of the principles we all claim to be fighting for. That is, please don't freak out about people who are moving here to have these wartime industrial jobs. But freak out Portland did. And meanwhile, the Albina district was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. People were sleeping on the floor of bars, on the floors of church. People were turning pool tables into beds. They were sleeping in their cars. African Americans who worked in the shipyards were sleeping wherever they could between shifts. Something had to be done. All of these workers, these necessary workers, who were building ships for World War II, they couldn't go on sleeping on floors. They couldn't go on sleeping on, you know, a tavern's pool table or in a church pew. These people needed houses. And Kaiser, 
of all people, a military contractor, recognized that. The federal government also recognized that. The city of Portland, um, less so. So, what ended up happening is that a private corporation, the Kaiser Company, and a federal government went around the back of the city of Portland. What they did is they found a bit of unincorporated county land just north of Portland and just south of Vancouver, Washington, and decided they were going to put a town right there. City officials were not notified at all. They were surprised when the bulldozers started roaring. They didn't know what to think when suddenly what had just been empty Columbia River marshland was being turned into a city, a city that would be called Vanport. You know, Vancouver, Portland, Vanport. There you go. Vanport went up cheap and it went up fast, in part to satisfy the immediate demand of the workers who were working in the Kaiser shipyards, and also because, you know, Kaiser and the feds didn't want to pay too much for this thing. The people who lived there called the houses cracker box houses. They had thin walls, they were often made of not the best materials, and there was sort of an understanding between everybody that it was going to be consumable and temporary. After the war ended, after these jobs were no longer necessary, of course, everyone was going to find somewhere else to live, right? The cracker box houses, they thought, would do for now. This swampy bit of land that they had built Vanport on, they thought, would do for now. Workers streamed into Vanport, a city built in less than six months, and suddenly it had 40,000 people. It was the second largest town in Oregon after Portland. Let me repeat that. 40,000 people in less than six months. And the people who lived in Vanport, black and white workers alike, were productive. They built ships 24 hours a day for the American, British, and Russian fleets. And they did it fast. They built one cargo ship in less than 40 days. No less than Winston Churchill called that a record beyond compare when Franklin D. Roosevelt was bragging about American industrial productivity to him. So, yeah, this little insta-city with a bunch of cheap electrical power and a bunch of migrant workers impressed one of the most, you know, consequential world leaders ever. Now, Vanport, in a lot of ways, mirrored race relations in Portland. There was no official segregation, but there was a de facto white and de facto black part of town. However, the realities of World War II made segregation in many parts of it just plain impractical. Segregation on the assembly line wasn't worth it. Segregation in Vanport's one small school wasn't worth it. So, in some ways, even though it was still a informally segregated part of Oregon, in some ways it was the most racially progressive part of the state, unlike the larger city just south of it. But what happens when the war is over? What happens when you don't need all those ships anymore? What happens when you don't need Vanport? Now, what a lot of people thought would happen is that the jobs would go away, the people would find other jobs elsewhere, and the migrant workers would go on being migrant again. And black and white workers alike would find somewhere else to go, somewhere else where they could find a job that would pay them, maybe not as well as they had been paid in the war, but decently enough. But that 
didn't happen. A lot of the people who'd moved to the Portland area stayed in the Portland area. They liked it. They began to put down roots. And the white population of Vanport, many of them were able to move up from the cracker box houses. They were able to afford either renting or buying homes inside Portland proper. However, much of the black population in Vanport didn't have that luxury. Many financial institutions, many property companies in Portland, Oregon, refused to either rent or sell or provide liquidity to black clients. So, even though a lot of these folks, they had money, they had assets, they had credit histories, they had employment history, they had the means to either purchase or rent a house, but they were banned from doing so through segregation. And after the war, because of that, Vanport became more black. At the beginning, it was about 40% black. But by 1948, it's some 60% black, and it was in bad shape. One member of the National Urban League in Portland called it a nasty segregated ghetto. But it was not a nasty segregated ghetto that would be outside of Portland for very long. Because you see, Vanport they never thought would last. There was a reason that unincorporated county land was unincorporated. It was a floodplain. And the Kaiser Company and the federal government and everyone who lived in Vanport just figured, well, the floods come, but they don't come all that often. It's not an every year type of thing. So they figured, you know what? We'll build some dikes. We'll take our chances. And we'll see that the city stays here for the entire duration of the war. And to their credit, Vanport did do what it was supposed to. It did stay coherent for the whole duration of World War II. But 1945 ended, and 1946 ended, and 1947 ended, 1948 rolled around, and Vanport, the aging, dilapidated Insta-City, was still there. In May of 1948, the Columbia River swelled up with runoff from the Cascade Mountains. Snowmelt and ice melt swelled the river, and... Just like it does every spring, the water levels went up, and residents of Vanport started to worry, because this time was bigger. This time, the winter snows sent them more cold floodwaters than in previous years, and the authorities in Vanport said to the citizens, dikes are safe at present, you will be warned if necessary, you will have time to leave, don't get excited. Now, the dikes in Vanport did what they were supposed to. The waters were rising, and the dikes held. But the railroad embankment didn't. There was basically a big earthen hill with a bunch of railroad tracks on top of it, and it was that that gave out even while the other flood control measures held. And that railroad embankment giving out was enough to destroy Vanport. Soon, a wall of water ripped the city off of its shallow, quickly made, cheaply made, shallow foundations. The cracker box houses were gone. They never stood a chance. Vanport was 447 buildings destroyed. All of them, every single one of them, was gone in the space of an afternoon. Fifteen people died as a direct result of the flood that we know of. And the rest of Vanport's population were destitute. These were people who had lost their homes. They had lost, oftentimes, their jobs. They had lost their possessions. They lost just about everything. 
Many of the migrant workers who had moved to Portland for a new life suddenly found their lives ripped from them entirely. After the flood, Portland, Oregon, my hometown, had to contend with what can best be called a refugee crisis of suddenly thousands of homeless people, homeless people who'd helped America win World War II, streaming into Portland proper. Many of these newly homeless people lived in trailers set up by the federal government on Swan Island, one of Portland's several industrial areas, and they lived there in those federally provided trailers for sometimes as long as two years. Eventually, they moved into Portland proper, many of the African-American citizens moving into the Albina neighborhood, again, the quote-unquote official black neighborhood of Portland at the time. Years after the flood, there were multiple proposals to do something with that land, which eventually became controlled by the city of Portland. There have been proposals to build apartments there. There was one proposal to build a coliseum there for, you know, sports and gatherings and concerts and all that. And for the most part, that hasn't really happened. There's a park, there's a raceway, there are a few other things. But mostly, if you go just north of my house, just across the Columbia Slough, and up through Delta Park, you'll see a whole lot of empty space. There are some soccer fields and parking lots, but for the most part, the city that used to be Oregon's second largest is only a memory. As always, this podcast is 100% listener-supported by you. If you want to become a supporter, and you should want to become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com and click on the thing to find out how to do that. And thank you, all of you who are monthly supporters I really could not do this without you. As always, uh, reviews and stars on iTunes are great. So give us a rating, give us a review. That helps other people discover the show. Uh, if you want to interact with me, leave comments, questions, rest of it, I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Go there, click the like button, do the thing. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>